morning, everyone. All right, so Genesis 22. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, we'll get to this in a minute, but this is a really troubling passage. Uh, Abraham is called to offer up his son as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice. So if that's never troubled you before, I mean, maybe if you're not familiar with it, you're going to get familiar with it and you're going to be troubled. But if you are familiar with it, maybe you heard the story over and over again in Sunday school. If it's never troubled you, maybe you haven't read it carefully enough or thought about it enough because this is really pretty disturbing. So I actually know a few people personally who have said to me in years past, actually one more recently, that this is a major reason why they can't believe in the God of the Bible. Or they judge that the God of the Bible is, is kind of like a moral monster for asking this of Abraham. I mean, what kind of God would ask a father to sacrifice his son? I mean, these are thoughtful, smart, like really nice people. You would like them if you met them. One of them was one of my favorite high school teachers. So I maintained some correspondence with her after graduation, you know, Christmas letters and such and that kind of thing. And I wrote to her one time, years after high school, to share the gospel with her, to talk to her about Jesus, because I love this lady and I just wanted to share the best news that I have with her. Um, and she replied warmly, but she stated clearly in her return letter some of her, you know, objections to Christianity. And one of the main reasons she gave for not believing in the God of the Bible was this story. She could not conceive of a loving God asking this of Abraham. And she's not the only one who's wrestled with this passage and turned away in disgust. So... We need to look at it honestly. I, I wonder if part of the rub might be this. What do people think the Bible is? might be a weird question. You might wonder what that has to do with anything. But the question is, is the Bible primarily a book of laws and rules for morality? If you view the Bible as a book of morality, like do this, don't do that, be more like this, less like this, and certainly it has plenty of laws and rules in it, but if that's what you think it is primarily, you're going to be scandalized by this story. You're going to think that your ethics, your morality is better than God's. You might put him in the dock in the courtroom sort of sense and judge him and find him wanting, but if the Bible is primarily a grand story, of rescue and redemption. It's more like a biography than it is a rule book, an autobiography, we could say. Then you just might be thrilled over what this chapter reveals about the author. So I'm hoping that's, I'm praying that that's what's going to happen as we study this. So Genesis 22, we will kind of comment, as, comment on it as we walk through it, so turn there. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful, and then the slides will be up on the screen. So first point, the test that God puts Abraham through. 
verses 1 and 2. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So really quick little context thing here. After these things, if you are visiting this morning or weren't here last week, so chapter 21, Pastor Tyler um, worked, walked us through that passage last week. So Isaac is the miracle son of promise. He was finally born in the, the previous chapter, chapter 21. Abraham's around 100 years old. Sarah's around 90. When the Lord first promised them that they would bear a son, Sarah laughed because it seemed so impossible. She was well past menopause. She's barren all of her childbearing years. And so finally we get to chapter 21, and this miracle baby arrives, and his name, Isaac, means laughter. So their skeptical laughter, <laughs> yeah, am I going to have a baby? Their skeptical laughter turns into joyful, grateful laughter at the birth of this promised one. Ishmael is a, the other son of Abraham. He had him with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, not the child of promise. Okay, this was the result of Abraham and Sarah getting impatient, not trusting the Lord, taking matters into their own, hand, or into their own hands. And so also in last chapter, verse tw- or chapter 21, Ishmael is mocking young Isaac. So Hagar and Ishmael, mom and son, are sent away. God was gracious with them, promised to make him into a great nation, but he's not the child of promise. Okay? He's not the one through whom God would fulfill his covenant promise to bless the world. So Abraham is left with his only son, Isaac. And Isaac is the one through whom God will bless the world, like he promised in chapter 12. But now God tests Abraham, and it is a shocking test. So God obviously knows what this boy means to Abraham. Look again at the the language of verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. What? I mean, how can this be? Why would God ask this of Abraham? Why would he do this with the promised child? It doesn't make any sense. So one of the things that we should note is that this call in chapter 21 is similar to the first call of God to Abraham, Abram at the time, when he was still just a pagan moon worshiper in Ur of the Chaldeans, okay, back in chapter 12. This almost serves like bookends. So flip back to Genesis chapter 12, or I think it'll be on the screen here. You remember this? Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So in other words, leave everything behind. All your sources of identity and security. Place, people, family. I mean, these things were as precious as life itself to Abraham. His family was his social security, his insurance, his retirement, his everything. And so the call of Genesis 12 
and the call of Genesis 22 are like bookends in his life. They're both a call to faith. So in 12, God calls him out of Ur to offer up his past and his present security to God, trusting God to provide for him and to make good on those promises. In Genesis 22, God calls Abraham to offer up his future security to him, trusting him to provide and make good on his promises. So you see how it's a call to faith in both cases. And in both cases, I'm not even going to tell you where I'm taking you. Just trust me. <laughs> to the land that I will show you. I'm not even going to tell you ahead of time. Of the, uh, on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So, serious call to faith here. Life with God is a life of faith from first to last. For Abraham and for us. So, if God didn't call us into the unknown with risk and uncertainty... We wouldn't need to trust him, right? So if we're believers in God, we need to realize that we're going to oftentimes want to know much more than God is going to be willing to share with us, to make known to us, because he wants us to trust him. He's testing our faith. But also know this. As he tests our faith, as he proves our faith, his ultimate purpose is to prove himself to us. Not just to prove the reality of our faith, but to prove to us the reality of his faithfulness and his wisdom and his love. And that's certainly the case here with the test of Abraham. So, this first point is the longest one, and you really have to track with me here, okay? Because we have to enter into the world of the Bible if we're going to understand what's going on. So we as the readers know that this is a test, right off the bat, verse 1, but Abram didn't know, Abraham didn't know this, okay? When the writer says that it's a test, we know that means God's not going to harm Isaac. So it relieves some tension for us, but Abraham didn't know that. Okay, so many people, theologians, philosophers, my high school English teacher, and others, have wrestled with what God asks of Abraham here. This is horrible. I mean, put yourself in Abraham's shoes. Imagine yourself doing this. Three days in route. What are you thinking about? What's that like emotionally, psychologically? And then the walk up with Isaac, we'll get to it, but especially when Isaac asks, um, Dad, we've got the wood and the, where's the lamb? I mean, talk about like just turning the knife. I mean, it's just too much to even think about. And offer him up as a burnt offering? I mean, too much to think about, let alone do. So is God violating his own law and command here? I mean, did God command Abraham to commit murder? Isn't he soon in Exodus 20 going to say, one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit murder? You shall not murder? Or worse yet, is this child sacrifice? I mean, sadly, child sacrifice was not uncommon in the ancient Near East among other pagan religions. But isn't the God of Israel, isn't he different? I mean, doesn't he in other places in the Bible just reject 
child sacrifice as an abomination? Look at Deuteronomy 18. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. This is God speaking to his people, Israelites. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. It's an abomination. It's prohibited. Like, you can't do this. So what gives? Is God, like, speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Well, before you break out the razor blade to cut this chapter out of your Bible, like some people have, I think what we need to reach for instead is the magnifying glass. We need to slow down and look at this carefully to understand what's here. So you need to realize that Abraham lived in a world that's very different from the one in which we live. Okay, So we need to get back into the world of the Bible, like I mentioned. We live in a very individualistic culture. Abraham lived in a very communal family, was everything, the clan was everything sort of culture. Also, there was something called the law of primogeniture. It's a big word, okay, but it's pretty simple, that all the ancient cultures practiced. So it's this fancy word that basically refers to the fact that the firstborn had all the rights and privileges and the responsibilities for the family. So the future of the family was placed in the hands of the firstborn son. He got all the wealth, the inheritance, and he then became the benefactor to the other family members. Probably one of the reasons why was that a family would have only so much wealth, and if there were, let's say, eight kids, you know, family's pretty big back then, um, to divide up the wealth would so dilute it that the family's place and status would be more tentative, more unstable. You can imagine... You know, land was a part of that wealth, and if you just divvy it up and parcel it out, everybody's doing their own thing, it's just not going to work. So the hope of the family for the future was bound up in the firstborn son. So in this sense, the firstborn represented the whole family and the family's future. Now, think about what happened at the Exodus. What was the final plague, the judgment that God leveled on the Egyptians? kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. This is probably no pun intended. Um, forget it. You guys awake? Okay. <laughs> what, was the, what was the last straw, the last plague? Death of the firstborn. It wasn't death of all the kids, but the death of the firstborn was a particularly devastating blow in that culture given the significance of the firstborn in ancient cultures. So why am I bringing all this up? <laughs> like crazy history lesson. Because God is, is clearly not calling Abraham to simply murder his son. If that was the case, don't waste three days going off into the middle of nowhere to the land of Moriah, wherever that is. He could have done it while Isaac was in his sleep, you know, spared Isaac a little bit of the emotional trauma of getting on the altar. No, notice what God is calling Abraham to do. Look at verse 2. Take your son your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. As a burnt offering. That phrase is repeated five more times in this chapter. Must be important. Verse 3, 6, 7, 8, 13. A burnt offering is an offering of atonement. An offering to provide atonement. To 
to deal with sin, to cover sin so that you can be reconciled to God. So think back to the Exodus event again. Were the firstborn of the Israelites automatically exempt from the judgment, you know, this death angel that's going to pass over that night? Were they just automatically exempt? No. They were all under the threat of death. The only way to be saved from the judgment of God was a lamb to be slain in the place of the firstborn son. So the Passover lamb has to die and its blood applied over the doorpost in order for the firstborn son to be delivered from judgment. So here's, here's the point. Abraham is likely, he, he likely had an inkling of what this meant. The fact that God called him to sacrifice Isaac as a burnt offering, atonement, meant that God was calling in the family's debt of sin. Calling it due. So Abraham knows that his family's got sin, and he knows God can do this, but he also knows this promise, and he's just like, I mean, his mind just has to be blown. Like, how does this all fit together? The future hope of the family bound up in the firstborn, but the sin of the family meant that they had no righteous claim to a future and a hope. Sin kills our future and our hope, right? Which is why atonement and redemption is necessary. In fact, this is crazy, just seeing all this fit together. After the exodus, the firstborn sons belonged to the Lord and always had to be redeemed. Have you ever noticed that? Exodus 13, 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's, every, like a sacrifice, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So this test is not murder your son and prove your allegiance to me. This is not child sacrifice like that of the pagans in Canaan. But this certainly was like the ultimate rock and hard place test for Abraham. He knew his sin. He knew the sin of his family. If you've been with us the last several weeks as we've walked through Genesis 12 to here, it's like a circus. I mean, sometimes, you know, Abraham should be on the Jerry Springer show. So he knew his sin, but he also knew Yahweh was holy and just, and he couldn't just sweep his sin under the rug of the universe. He knew that God had every right to call in the debt of sin. The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So in order to atone for human sin, death is required. Justice requires blood sacrifice. But he also knows that God has made these gracious covenant promises to him, and specifically through his son Isaac. So all of those promises are bound up in this boy that he had to bind on an altar and slaughter. So how could this be? Isaac's supposed to be the hope of the world. No Isaac, no people of God. No, no Israel, no people of God, no Messiah. No Messiah, no salvation and blessing for all the peoples on earth. 
So how could God call him to do this and make good on his promises? He didn't know. It seemed that God's command contradicted his promise. It seemed that God's command contradicted his promise. Has it ever felt like, how can God take care of me if I follow him? Is it, have you ever maybe felt like you're in a similar situation? Well, he didn't know, but he trusted. So second point, and this one more briefly, the first point's the longest one. Um, look at, let's look at Abraham's trust, verses 3 to 12. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Do you think this was like a way of deflecting? I mean, was this almost like a white lie? God will provide for himself the lamb. Or was it a powerful articulation of resolute faith? Faith that was real, but groping through the darkness of uncertainty and confusion. Literally, this reads, God, it's emphatic in Hebrew, God will see to it. Will provide is a good translation, but literally the the verb is, just means to see, to see to it. So God will see to it himself that the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So he's going to see to it. He's going to provide. Look at verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, things just start to go into slow motion here. The, the narrator, the way that he writes this, just every detail, we see it, and it just slows down. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So he passed the test. The angel of the Lord says, now I know that you fear God. What does it mean to fear God? It doesn't mean to be scared of him. In the Bible, it's nearly synonymous with trusting and obeying him. So a friend of mine who's a New Testament professor, Scott Haifman, 
he summarizes it like this. Because Abraham has offered Isaac, God now knows in the sense of experiencing its reality in, in time and space. Obviously, God knows everything. It's not like he was surprised or needed to learn things. God now knows that Abraham has learned his lesson. Abraham fears losing his relationship with God more than he fears anything else, even losing his son, so that he trusts God more than he trusts anyone or anything else, even himself. Fear is the flip side of faith. And we also have inspired commentary on what's going on here. So in Hebrews 11, this is what is written. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Here's what he was thinking. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham doesn't know how to put these things together, but he figures, well, maybe he'll raise him from the dead. <laughs> so where does he get that? Where does the writer of Hebrews get that idea? Is there anything in the text that, that kind of points in that direction? Well, look back at Genesis 22, 5. Did you notice this? Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And the verb is still plural. We will come again to you. Huh. So Abraham passed the test. But the most important part of this story is not the faith and obedience of Abraham, as important as that is. The most important thing about this story is the provision of God. So let's look at point number three, the provision in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So you remember verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide. He will see to it the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Well, God saw to it. He made his character and faithfulness visible. God will see to it, and then what happens? Abraham looks and sees the ram provided. So God made his character and faithfulness visible to Abraham and Isaac. He made his redemptive provision seeable, visible, on Mount Moriah when Abraham looked and saw that ram caught in a thicket. So God provided the substitute sacrifice. So the promised seed of Abraham, you know, through whom everybody was going to be blessed, was offered here, but God didn't ultimately require that sacrifice. Instead, God himself provided the sacrifice. Now, if you were one of the early readers, if you were one of the first readers, you know, Israelites in the Old Testament, with whom in this story do you think you would identify? There's only a couple options. <laughs> Abraham? Maybe. Probably not. How about with Isaac? More likely. 
His life was preserved by the provision of the sacrificial substitute. That was the case for all the Israelites, right? They needed sacrifice of atonement. That was the point of the Passover meal year after year as a reminder that God has to provide atonement for us. So because of God's provision of the substitute, Isaac could live and God would fulfill his covenant promises in order that his people might live, in order that all the families of the earth might be blessed. And so it makes sense then that there's a reiteration of the covenant promises on the heels of verse 13. So look now at verses 14 to 18 at the promise that's stated here. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or the Lord will see to it. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided or seen to. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is that passage that Susanna read. Hebrews 6 quotes this. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So as important and necessary as Abraham's faith and obedience was, and it obviously is because you've done this, because you've obeyed my voice, the place wasn't named, it wasn't memorialized as, here's the place where Abraham obeyed. It's memorialized as, the Lord will provide. On the mount of Yahweh, of the Lord, it shall be provided. That's the saying that grew out of this event. So, Let's step back for a second here and say, why in the world did God send Abraham on this three-day journey for this test? Was it just to make it harder? Like more psychological torture? Let's see, one day, no, two, no, let's make it three. Was that why? No. There's actually one other place in the Old Testament where Mount Moriah is mentioned. Second Chronicles 3.1. should be up there. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, the temple, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. So this place where God called Abraham to offer his son, like he intentionally sent him to that place. Why? It's where the temple was built in Jerusalem. And what took place in the temple? Sacrifices burnt offerings to make atonement for the sins of the people. So what is the ultimate fulfillment of the saying, on the mount of the Lord it shall be, future tense, provided? How's God going to deal with the debt of our sin and bless the world through the offspring of Abraham? This right here, this saying in verse 14 it's like this huge neon sign pointing to the cross. So, so this episode was God testing and proving Abraham's faith, that he feared him and loved him above all else, including Isaac. But ultimately, this episode is about God putting his love to the test 
and proving it to us. Proving that he loved us so much that he was willing to give his only son, the son whom he loved, that we might be redeemed. So Tim Keller says it like this in a book, Counterfeit Gods, really great book. God saw Abraham's sacrifice and said, Now I know that you love me because you did not withhold your only son from me. But how much more can we look at his sacrifice on the cross and say to God, Now we know that you love us. For you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. So can you see it? Can you see what God provided? Can you see how the Lord saw to it? The provision of the lamb in our place for our redemption, for our sins. So last point, behold the lamb. So this test of faith you know, in the middle of the story, it just makes it seem like God is going back on his promise, right? Give you this miracle baby, going to bless all the families of the earth through him. And then he says, sacrifice him. Seems like the promise is retreating rather than moving forward. Like it's defeat and loss and confusion. Like God is calling us to the impossible and killing the fulfillment of his promises. But Behold, the Lamb of God, slain and bloody on the cross. That also looked like a defeat, didn't it? Do you remember those guys as they're walking? This is after Jesus died and rose again, and there was those two guys walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus came up and joined them. And, you know, he didn't let them know it was him initially, and he just says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And in Luke 24, well, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But just as this test of Abraham in Genesis 22, instead of crushing Abraham's faith, it was actually the climactic display of God's faithfulness to strengthen Abraham's faith. So also, the apparent weakness and defeat of the cross was actually the strongest and most radiant display of God's redemptive provision for us sinful people. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So, God is going to test our faith. He's going to lead us into seemingly impossible situations. But it is not because he's cruel. It's not because he loves for things to just be chaotic or he's chaotic in some sort of Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde sort of way. It's because he wants to prove our faith, test our faith, prove our faith, and even more importantly, to prove his faithfulness to us. He wants us to be sure of him. So he'll Make us unsure, take the carpet out from underneath us so that we have nowhere else to cling but to him. And then he will provide. So why is this in the Bible? Why did God ask this of Abraham? Did God need proof that Abraham trusted him in some sort of harsh, demanding, authoritarian way? No, this passage is in the Bible to give us, it certainly 
showed Abraham God's provision, but it also is in the Bible to give us a glimpse to help us know the faithfulness, the provision, the love of God. Imagine Abraham standing at the foot of the cross. What do you think he would say? He would say, now I know. Now I see it. (laughs) Wow, that was a foreshadowing. I see what it's all pressing toward. So listen to Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, his only son, whom he loved, but willingly gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The beautiful gospel song of Romans 8.32, there's an early echo. The song starts back in Genesis 22. So Dale Davis writes this. He says, a few years ago, Christian History Magazine We'll close with this and one final story after it. Dale Davis writes, A few years ago, Christian History Magazine told of a time when Martin Luther, the reformer, um, he was a monk, and he married a nun. So you can imagine they were both pretty spunky because they both left the Catholic Church and, you know, he got married. Um, So she was definitely a pretty spunky lady. There's some interesting stories about her as well. Um, He was a very colorful character. So he read the story of Genesis 22 for family devotions. When he had finished, his wife Katie exclaimed, I do not believe it. God would not have treated his son like that. And she means Abraham or Isaac. Then Luther turned to her and said, but Katie, he did. And he meant he treated his son, the Lord Jesus, like that for us. So I'm going to close with this story here, um, and then we're going to sing Living Faith, and uh, be done soon here. So Ravi Zacharias, how many know who Ravi Zacharias is? Okay, he's an apologist. If you wrestle with hard questions of Christian faith, look him up on YouTube. You're going to be glad he's on our team. Sharp guy. You don't want to get in an argument with this guy. And he goes all over the world and, you know, speaks on college campuses and, and whatnot. Well, I heard a story not so long ago of a very interesting encounter that he had. Um, he actually had the chance to speak with a founder of Hamas, okay, the fundamentalist Islamic organization. Um, so here's what happened in his words. Do you know why the Middle East is in the cauldron of hate because it's living with the logic of unforgiveness. I was talking to one of the founders of Hamas. His name was Sheikh Talal. I was part of a group of the former Archbishop of Canterbury, about six or seven of us who had gone to the Middle East to try and bring the people together to a peace table. So we met with the leaders from both sides. And on the last day, we met the founder of Hamas, a muscle-bound guy who served 18 years in prison for all the killings that he had been involved in. His son himself had been in prison, and he lost many of his children, some of them, I think, in suicide bombings. We were all allowed to ask him one question. 
And when my question came, I asked him the question. I was not happy with the answer, so I said, Sheikh, I am not happy with the answer, but I'm not going to argue with you. I said, Sheikh, I just want to say this one thing to you. Not far from where you and I are sitting, 5,000 years ago, Abraham, whom you revere, whom I revere, went up a mountain and he took his son. You say it was Ishmael. Christians believe it was Isaac. Let's not argue about that now. Let's just agree that he took his son up the mountain. He said, that's right. I said, and he offered him as a sacrifice to God, and God stopped him in the nick of time and held back his hand and said, stop. I said, do you know what God said to Abraham then? He just looked at me blankly. I said, God said, I myself will provide. And he nodded his head. I said, very close to where you and I are sitting here in Ramallah, not far from here, 2,000 years ago, God kept that promise and he took his own son. I said, Sheikh Talal, this time the axe did not stop. He just stared at me. The room was full of smoke. With all of his security people and all there, I said, I may never see you again, Sheikh. And you won't like what I'm going to say to you, but I want to leave this with you. Until you and I receive the son that God has provided, we will be offering our own sons and daughters in the battlefields of this world for land and power and pride. I could just see the man's lips beginning to quiver. He was just sitting right next to me. Nobody said anything after that. I thought to myself, oh, I've really blown this big time. And we were walking out. The archbishop put his arm around me, hugged me close, and said, Ravi, that was of God. I said, I meant it. I meant it. He said, you're right. As we were all going down, Sheikh Talal went quickly and shook hands with them and embraced. And then he came over to me, and he grabbed me by the shoulders, kissed me on both sides of the face, patted my face, and said, you're a good man. I hope I see you again someday, and opened the door to let me in. And he concludes with this. When you understand this Christ who offers forgiveness, it is a message that is unparalleled. In Hinduism, you pay with karma. In Islam, you'll never know. Your good deeds will have to outweigh your bad deeds in Islam. But the grace of Christ comes to you and says, if any man comes unto me, I will not cast him out. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see not just with physical eyeballs, but with the eyes of faith to see who you are and what you are like. To see what you reveal of yourself in Genesis 22, your character. To see why you would ask this of Abraham. And to see the ultimate provision that you actually took the real cost on yourself 
to provide and to make full and final atonement for our sins so that we could have everything. We could have you and a hope and a future because Jesus was the firstborn who was sacrificed in our place so that the inheritance, all things that are rightly his could become ours. If we have you, we have everything. Please help us see that. If you didn't spare your only son, the son whom you love, but willingly, graciously gave him up for us all, how will you not also together with him graciously give us everything that we need for every test, every trial, every hard path, every confusing moment? every seemingly impossible situation. Help us see your character so that we trust in you. Give us living faith. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.